Good morning. We are going to be taking a break the next two weeks from the book of Romans, and this morning we are going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. And as we prepare to read this passage, I just want to encourage you, the Bible is full of promises that God has given to us, and I think if you're like me, oftentimes we we hear those promises and we don't really think about the implication of those promises, and, and this is one of these passages where there's a very clear promise given to you. If you are a believer in Jesus, there's a clear and powerful, encouraging promise that is given to you. So I'd encourage you to keep an ear out for that, and to, as you hear the word read, to remember this is God's word to us. It is living and active, it's powerful, and it is true. So with that in mind, let us stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 13 through 21. This is the word of the Lord given to us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Please pray with me. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. We know that your word is inspired and that it is authoritative. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us clarity as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, that you'd give us understanding, that we would not simply walk away this morning having heard your word, but that it would be applied to our hearts and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, I ask that you would humble me and that you'd use me as your instrument for your purpose and for your glory this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As most of you know, I am a relatively new dad, and a matter of fact, Drew just celebrated his first birthday on Friday, and today actually marks what we call our gotcha day. This is the day that we received Drew, two days after he was born. So it's been a fun and exciting weekend for us in the Cochler house, uh, just remembering and thanking God for the provision of, of our son. And there are a lot of things I've learned about being a dad. First off, it's, it's a lot more joyful than you can imagine, and it's also a lot more difficult than you can imagine in a lot of ways. And One of the things that I've learned is that my reading habits have completely changed. Um, Before Drew, I used to read a lot of theology. I used to read a lot of Christian study and Christian works. Um, I still attempt to do those things, but I do so from a position of weakness, um, for I am generally pretty tired. Um, and, And secondly, I just don't generally have the time to read what I used to read. But not only that, I find that I'm now reading a whole new selection of books. And so, you know, it can be about spot finding things or um, happy hippos and angry ducks or whatever. 
Um, one of my favorite books, however, is this one, which I brought with me this morning. This is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. This is a classic work, and if you've not read this, this is a book about a little boy named Alexander who's around eight years old, and he just has one of those days when everything goes wrong. There's a disaster right after another, one after another. Nothing went right. And so, for instance, here are just some of the things that happens to Alexander on his day. Um, he, woke, he wakes up in the morning, and he discovers that he went to bed with gum in his mouth, but he wakes up, and it's in his hair. He gets out of bed, and he trips over a skateboard. He then drops his towel in the shower in the tub where it gets wet. And then he goes to school, and he has a horrible day there. And after school, he has to go to the dentist. And he's the only one of all his siblings who there's a cavity found. So it's a horrible time at the dentist. Then he came home for supper, and his mom is serving him lima beans. And as we all know, we hate limas. Um, and then on TV, he says, there was nothing but kissing, and I hate kissing. Then his bath water was too hot, and he got soap in his eyes, and he lost his marble down the drain. Then he went to bed, and the pillow that Nick had promised him, he took it back. His Mickey Mouse light didn't work. He bit his tongue, and the cat decided to sleep with his brother rather than him. And so he ends the day and says, you know, all in all, it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And then he finally cries out, I'm going to move to Australia. I'm going to run away and go to Australia. So my question to you this morning is, have you ever experienced a day like Alexander's? Does life feel like that sometimes? Because we do. We live in a world of sin. And because of that, there's death and destruction all around us. Our lives are full of problems and struggles and pain. And oftentimes, things don't really look like they're going to get any better. So how can we face each new day when every day looks like it has the potential to be another horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day? What hope do we have? Well, that is one of the reasons why John wrote this letter. He wanted his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be people that were filled with hope And he wants you to be greatly encouraged because of the relationship that you have with Jesus. And so he does this by giving us this promise. And what is the promise that he gives us? Well, look at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the promise is that it is possible for us to know that we've been given eternal life. We can have confidence, assurance of our salvation. And this really should encourage each of us. Despite all the things that are going on in this world, despite the struggles that we face each and every day, we can have assurance and we can have hope. That's the main reason why John wrote this letter. And he says it explicitly in this verse. John is good about this. John tells us why he wrote this letter at the end of 1 John. And he tells us why he writes his gospel at the end of uh, the gospel of John. And we read this in John 20. 31, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it's really interesting when you compare these two purpose statements, the one at the end of the Gospel of John and the one at the end of 1 John. You see, the Gospel of John is written primarily for evangelistic reasons. He wants, reader, he wants his readers to come to believe in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, come to have eternal life, to be saved, to be born again. And then he writes his epistle, this first John letter, for discipleship reason. He wants those of us who do believe in Christ, those of us who are Christians, he wants us to know that we still have eternal life, that we still belong to Jesus. And this is where things get interesting. 
Because when you look at the gospel, who is John writing about? He's writing about Jesus. That belief in Jesus brings eternal life. And who does John write about in, in this letter, in this epistle? Once again, he's writing about Jesus. Belief in Jesus brings assurance. In other words, he wants us to know that the same way we became Christians is the same way that we grow as Christians. So if you want your faith to grow, if you want to have assurance, then you need to look to Jesus. That is what John is telling us in this passage. That is what he tells us throughout this letter. The promise of assurance, confidence assurance, it's based upon Jesus. It is not based upon us. That is why John goes on in this passage to provide us with five things that Jesus has provided for us as Christians. He provides for us intercession, forgiveness, protection, understanding, and union. And these five truths build a defense for this promise that he gives us in verse 13. So because of these things, we can have confidence that this promise in verse 13 will stand. So the first truth is found in verses 14 and 15, and this is what John writes. So this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Jesus is our great high priest, and he intercedes for us even now. He's interceding for us right now from the right hand of God, which is the position of all honor and power and authority. And because of Jesus, we too have access to God. Do you really understand what an amazing privilege that is? Think about it this way. Consider these three questions. First, who are we? Every one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.23, we've been working through Romans, and, and Paul's made this clear time and time again. Romans 3.21 say that all have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Second, who is God? God is pure and holy. He cannot allow sin into his presence. Third, what does God know about each one of us? Well, there is absolutely nothing that is hidden from God's sight. God knows everything. He knows everything that we've ever done. He knows every word that we've ever spoken. He knows every thought that has ever entered our mind. And He even knows all the motives behind everything that we've done, said, or thought. We are fully exposed before Him. And yet we're still told that we can approach God with confidence. That's one of the reasons why I love the passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. This is what it says. It says, No creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are, we are sinners. We are fully exposed before a holy God who will not allow sin into his presence. Yet here in the book of Hebrews and also here in 1 John, we are told that we can approach God with confidence. How is that possible? It is only possible because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. There is no other way. Jesus brought himself as the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins, and he is the one that is interceding for us even now. Because of him and him alone, we have access to the Father. And that is not a small thing. Through Jesus, we can approach the very throne room of God 
with confidence. And when we approach God's throne, we don't find one of of condemnation or of judgment, but we find one of grace. That is one of the reasons why we can have the assurance of our salvation. That because of Jesus, we have access to God. If we were not redeemed, if if we had not been saved, we would never be allowed into his presence. But because of Jesus, we can approach him with confidence. And since we have this privilege, John goes on to tell us, let's take advantage of it. He says, if we ask anything... If we ask anything, he hears us. The word used here means more than an audible hearing. It means giving heed to or an interested and attentive listening. That is what God does for us as his children. He is interested and he's attentive to the things that we ask of him in prayer. And how does God respond to us? Well, John goes on to say that we have, we know that we have what we ask of him. In other words, God God responds to what we ask of him. God answers our prayers. Now, if you look at this passage, we need to note that there's an important condition placed upon this. And we see that in verse 14. It says that we must ask according to his will. In other words, God does not allow us to have unbridled access and liberty to ask for whatever comes to mind or whatever we feel like we need without taking into account God himself. And the reason for that is because God wants what is truly best for you. And so we are asked to come to him and to ask according to his will. John Stott explains this this way, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. But if we're honest, we we struggle with that, don't we? We really want God to give us what we want. We think we know what's truly best for us, and therefore we want God to give us that. But what we need to understand is if God gave us everything that we wanted and everything that we asked, it actually would be disastrous. There's a a movie that came out many years ago that actually illustrates this quite well, and this is the movie Bruce Almighty. I don't recommend it as good theology, but it's still a a funny movie, and there's a powerful point in there. And, And if you don't know this movie... The main character, Bruce, he is given the powers of God by God himself. And so shortly after that, he starts hearing all these voices in his head. And those, he realizes those voices are is everybody's prayer to God. Now he's hearing them in his head, and it drives him crazy. And so he comes up with this idea. I'm going to make it so that every prayer request that's given to God is now going to come in the form of email. And so rather than hearing these voices in his head, now he's getting these emails. And so he goes to bed for the night, and he wakes up the next morning to discover that he's got millions and millions and millions of emails waiting for him on his computer. And that frustrates him, and he knows there's no way he can respond to all of those. That's going to take forever. So he comes up with another brilliant idea, and that is he sets his computer to reply yes to every single one of those emails. So in other words, he, as God, says, I'm going to say yes to everybody's prayer request. Everybody's prayers are going to be answered for them. And if you've seen the movie, what is the result of that? It is disastrous. It's horrible. There's disaster after disaster, and he quickly realizes that he can't do that, that everybody's prayers can't be answered the way they want them to be answered. What you and I need to understand is that we are not God. We don't always know what is best for us, but God does. And he will hear and answer every request we bring to him if we bring it through Christ according to his will. And we need to remember that though he will answer these prayers, he's going to do so in his way and in his timing. The question for us this morning is this. 
Do you truly trust Him? God is absolutely good. He is absolutely powerful. He knows everything. And He loves you more than you even realize. Do you trust Him? So we see in this passage that Jesus provides intercession for us. We have access to God through Jesus. The next truth is found in verses 16 through 18. Once again, John writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. As Christians, we've been given the gift of prayer. And John reminds us that this is not only a gift that we should use for ourselves, but it's a gift that we should use for other people. Basically, he's saying that we need to be praying for one another. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. And specifically, not only should we be praying for them, but specifically we should be praying that they would come to know their sin and that, that, that they would be led to confession and repentance and turning back to the Lord. And I think it's interesting, we have an opportunity to be reminded of this even later on in the service when we install two new officers. Um, as David is installed as deacon and Rick is installed as elder, you know, they're called to, to lead us, to shepherd us. And first and foremost, we are called to pray for them. Pray that the Lord would protect them, that he would grow them. But also pray that the Lord would continue to reveal their sins so that they can confess and repent and turn once again to Jesus. As officers, they need to be an example to us in that way. And so pray for them. Pray that they would know their sin and they would turn to Jesus regularly and freely. But we also need to ask of them as they seek to shepherd us that they would pray for us in the same way. That they would pray that God would continue to reveal our sin. That we would quickly repent and turn to the Lord so that we would understand and know His grace and forgiveness. And so it's an opportunity to be reminded of that as we install them today. That is one of the purposes that they will... That they will, and one of the ways they'll serve us is in praying for us in that way. And, that, and one of the ways we will encourage them is by praying for them in that way. And we do so with confidence because we know that God provides us with forgiveness. Now this doesn't necessarily appear that obvious at first, but it, it permeates throughout this passage. Let me explain. We've seen here that John contrasts two types of, of sin in this passage. There's sin that leads to death, and there's sin that does not lead to death. Now, that sounds confusing or even contradictory, so, so what does he mean by that? Well, first, we need to acknowledge that any and all sin is offensive to God. And secondly, in Romans 6.23, we were reminded that the wages of sin is death. In other words, every sin requires the payment of death. Every sin leads to death. Now, that may seem contradictory to what John wrote, but it is not. And the reason for that is when John makes that statement... He's doing something amazing. He has in view, as he makes a statement, the cross of Christ and what Christ accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Because you see, every sin does lead to death. But for Christians, for those of us who believe in Jesus, our sin does not lead to our death. It leads to the death of Jesus because he becomes sin for us. Our sin leads to his death. It led to his death, and we gained life. So anyone who has trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, you have been forgiven. Jesus has paid for your sins, past, present, and future. Now this doesn't mean that we no longer sin, and all of us know that that's true, because we do still sin. And really that's what John is talking about here in this passage. You see, the sin that leads, the sin of unbelievers, or the sin that, sorry, the sin of, that leads to death is the sin of unbelievers. 
Their sins have not been paid for by the blood of Jesus, and therefore they are facing spiritual death. They are headed to an eternity in hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus, unless God calls them and saves them. And specifically, John has in view here uh, false teachers that were in the church at that time that were misleading people, that denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied His atoning sacrifice upon the cross. They had rejected Him. And they were, they were attempting to lead others away from Jesus. And that is why John says for us not to pray for them. Because they have already been judged by God. Because they belong to Satan. Their sin has led them to their spiritual death already. But, but what about the sin that doesn't lead to death, as mentioned in, in verse 17 and, and other places? Well, that is the sin of Christians. Sin that doesn't lead to death are sins committed by Christians because we have been forgiven already. We're already forgiven. Eternal life belongs to us. We will not be judged for our sins because Jesus was judged in our place. For us, sin does not lead to our death because it already led to the death of Jesus upon the cross. Jesus took care of our sin for us. Now, though that is true, that does not mean that sin is no longer a big deal. It is true that sin cannot separate us from the love of Christ. That it cannot change the fact that we are God's children. But sin does affect our communion with God. And that is why John tells us to pray for one another that God would give us life. Because true life and joy, and peace, and happiness. It is all found in a relationship with God. It is all found in communion with Him. So while we struggle with sin, that that can damage and hinder our fellowship with God. But because of Jesus, you have been forgiven. We can continue to freely come to Him and confess our sins, knowing that Jesus has already paid the price for them, knowing that we've already been forgiven. Through Him, communion with God can be restored, and therefore we can have life, and have life abundantly. We can come again and again to Jesus until we are fondly with Him in glory when sin is no more. Well, there's even more good news in this passage, and we see this in verse 18. John says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, John is not saying here that the moment you accept Christ, the moment you're born again, you stop sinning. Because once again, we know that that's not true. All of us continue to sin. All of us continue to struggle with sin. But he's actually talking about the the work of the Spirit in sanctification. See, because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin has no control over us anymore. And as the Spirit continues to work on us, There are a lot of things that happen, but some of the things that happen is we become more aware of our sin. We become more aware of the fact that it's offensive to God and that it's ugly. But we also become more aware of the fact that God's grace is working in us and that we are forgiven. We become more aware and appreciative of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. In other words, as we grow in Christ, sin becomes less attractive to us. It, It holds less power over us. One commentator said this, The new birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. And so this is what Jesus does for us. All of our sin has been forgiven. We've been purified and cleansed by his blood. And we are becoming more holy. We are becoming more like Christ through the work of the Spirit. And this is another reason why we can have assurance. is because God is not done with us. He is growing us to become more like Christ through the Spirit. 
So Jesus, he provides intercession. He has provided us with forgiveness. And he provides us with protection. We see this in verses 18 and 19. He says, He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. One of the points that John makes throughout this letter is that the world is in darkness. And that not only is the world in darkness, but once we believe in Jesus, once we are converted, he does not remove us from this world, but rather he keeps us in this world so that we can be ambassadors for Christ, so that we can be bright lights in this dark world for the gospel. He also reminds us throughout this letter, and we see this even in this passage, that this darkness, the darkness of this world is is ruled by the evil one. It is ruled by Satan, who is an active, strong, and clever enemy. And he's waiting to, to pounce on us like a lion and to devour us. And apart from Christ, we are no match for him. That's something we need to ponder from time to time. Because it is a sobering thought. But that is also why it is important for us to always remember that we are never left alone. We are not alone. Verse 18 tells us that the one born of God keeps us safe. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus protects us. And he does this by defeating Satan. Just like we are no match for Satan, Satan is no match for Jesus. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is one of the many reasons why Jesus came. Listen to these words earlier in 1 John. This is from 1 John 3.8. He says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Through the cross and resurrection, Satan has already been defeated by Jesus. And so, yes, Satan is still allowed to work, and he will continue to be allowed to work until Jesus finally returns. But he now does this from a position of weakness and a position of defeat. So Satan is no longer the evil one, but he is the defeated one. And his final destruction is guaranteed. If you ever read and study the book of Revelation, and I know that can be a confusing and intimidating book for a lot of people, but whenever you read that, keep this in mind, that the main point of the book of Revelation is simply the fact that Jesus wins. It is all about the victory of Jesus. And throughout that book, it does build up to this final battle. But when you get to that final battle, if this was like a movie, and you get to that final battle, it actually is rather disappointing because it is no contest whatsoever. But this is real life, and so it's greatly encouraging. It is no contest. Jesus defeats Satan with no problem whatsoever. And so we need to remember that. We have hope that Jesus' victory over Satan is assured. It is guaranteed. Now, once again, that doesn't mean that we take our enemy lightly because he is real. And he does have power. But Jesus has already defeated him. And he continues to protect us as his followers. This is even one of the things that he prayed in his high priestly prayer in in John 17. He prayed that um, to his father, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep us from from the evil one. So we see that Jesus intercedes for us. He forgives us. He protects us. And he gives us understanding. We see this in verse 20. It says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. It is only through Jesus that we can know God as our Father. According to Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, apart from Christ, we cannot truly know God. The Father is made known by the Son, 
And that is another one of the reasons why Jesus came. That we will have understanding. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it is in the face of Jesus that we see the glory of God. There is no other way. Why can we be assured of our salvation? It is because we know God. It is because we have a relationship with Him. We have understanding. Jesus intercedes for us. He forgives us. He protects us and He gives us understanding. And through Him, we are also united to God. Look again at verse 20. It says, We are in Him who is true. We are in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus abides in us and we abide in Him. And because, of Je- because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and since we abide with Him, since we have union with Him, we also have union with the Father. Union with Christ is this glorious, mysterious reality that is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And because of this union, we have an intimate relationship with God, with the Creator of the heavens and earth, through His Son. John has given us a promise that we can know for certain that we have eternal life. He's also reminded us of five truths that defend the validity of that promise. These are five things that Jesus has provided for us that give us confidence that that promise is true. He provides intercession and forgiveness, protection, understanding, and union. And now John moves on to one more important thing, and that is the foundation of this promise. The reason why this this promise of confident assurance is guaranteed, and we see this at the end of verse 20, when he writes that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. This is a very clear statement of the, the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And because this is true, we know we have eternal life. We've, eternal, we've received eternal life through Him and Him alone. As a matter of fact, eternal life is so closely linked to who Jesus is and what He's done for us that Jesus is actually called eternal life in this passage. John calls Him, says Jesus is eternal life. In other words, there is no other way to be saved. There's no other way you can have eternal life apart from Him. Since Jesus is God and since He is eternal life, we can have confidence that we've been given eternal life through Him. Why? Because it has absolutely nothing to do with you or me. Our eternal life is not based upon anything that we've done. It's not based upon anything that we haven't done. It is entirely based upon Jesus and who He is and what He did through His life, death, and resurrection. That is the basis of our assurance. Jesus is our foundation. And we can have confidence because of that. So regardless, if, if, you, if you do sin, if you struggle with sin, if you mess up, when you doubt, Jesus is still God. He is still eternal life. Nothing will ever change that. And nothing can ever replace Him. He alone is Christ. He alone is the Son of God. Don't listen to anyone that tells you differently. Because any other foundation that you use for your salvation will collapse. The whole structure will collapse. Because without Jesus, there is no union. Without Jesus, there is no understanding. There is no protection. Without Him, there is no forgiveness. Without Him, there is no intercession. And therefore, we can't have confidence of eternal life because we will not have eternal life. But if you love Jesus, if you've placed your trust in Him, then you have that, and you have much more than that. But Jesus is the only way. 
And that is why John ends his entire letter with a really unusual ending. And we see this in verse 21. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Anything that draws us away from Christ is an idol. So idols are not just simply some wooden or or stone statue that we worship. An idol can be a person that you follow. It could be anything that you look to for, for significance or for your security. So it could be money. It could be your job. It could be your family. It could be a relationship that you have. It could be some kind of teaching or philosophy that you follow. An idol is anything or anyone that that replaces Jesus in our lives. And since Jesus is God, and since Jesus is eternal life, no matter how small the idol might appear to be, it is utterly dangerous and destructive. Eternal life comes through Jesus and Him alone. We can have assurance through Jesus and Him alone. Everything else fails. Do you believe that this morning? Is your assurance based upon who Jesus is and what He's done for you? Because if it is, you can have confidence that you are saved and that Jesus will keep you till the end. I started this morning with a story about Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And we do. We all face days like that. So when we face a day like that, how does this promise of assurance help us make it through this day? How does it help us face days like that? But what I did not share with you is how Alexander's day finally ended. You know, after all his complaining and his threat to move to Australia, his mom replied to him and said these words, Everyone has bad days, even people who live in Australia. And her point is, is twofold. Everyone has bad days. You cannot escape them. But another point that's being made is that not only can you can't escape bad days, but there's always tomorrow. You see, we will have struggles. We will suffer. We will experience pain and hurt. There is no escaping those things. Our country and the world we live in, it is going to disappoint you. But there is always tomorrow. And that is why the assurance of eternal life is so powerful and important for us today, for us this morning, because we do have hope. Because no matter how bad things get today, we know that there is a day coming when it will all be over. Another way to think about this is God is writing his own story right now, and it's called Jesus and the Wonderful, Amazing, Not Bad, Very Good Day. And all of you are part of that story if you trust in Christ. So yes, today may be hard. You may be overwhelmed by the things in your life. But tomorrow is coming And it will be good and glorious. And guess what? You don't have to move to Australia to experience it. We can experience it right now if you believe in Jesus. Because in Christ, you have a promise that this new day is coming. And the day after that will be even better. And the day after that and after that and after that will be better and better and better for all eternity. And it is only because of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let us pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the glorious hope that we have because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you that because of him, all of us who are trusting in him as our Lord and Savior, that we can have confident assurance that eternal life belongs to us. Lord, all of us would confess that there are times where we forget that promise. There are times when we are overwhelmed by the challenges of life. 
And Lord, I know there are people even here this morning that are struggling, that are dealing with sickness and sorrow and pain and hurt. Lord, remind them of the good news of the gospel. Remind them that they have assurance that Jesus has paid for their sins, that they are forgiven, that Jesus is interceding for them, that he is protecting them, that he is giving them understanding, and that through Christ that we have been united to Jesus, that we can have an intimate relationship with the creator of the heavens and earth. Remind us also that there is a day coming when sin will be no more, when Satan will be fully and finally defeated, when Jesus' victory will be complete, and where we will spend the rest of eternity in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus as our Lord and Savior and friend. May that give us great hope. We pray this in his name. Amen.